0: You know, what I want to know is is how, how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen? if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves. Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to him. I had never been in a legal battle or a lawsuit in my life, so I really didn't have a clue on how to deal with the situation. The attorney that I had hired in Asheville, he was like a kind of a southern gentleman type. He wasn't that old. I'd say he was maybe 40. But I kind of learned a little bit about him one day in a conference call. He asked me to come in his office and he was going to call these brothers at this company and we were going to have this little chat. And he got the guy on the phone, one of these brothers, and I sat there and he told me just to sit there and listen. And they blatantly lied. I mean, it was the most unbelievable lying. Like, And I just stood up and I go, he's lying. Like I just said it out loud. And this attorney turned to me and he goes, sit down and shut up and i sat down and i thought oh my god you motherfucker i'm paying you 5000 fucking dollars a week and you tell me to sit down and shut up this was like a bleeding artery money was running out of my life into something that was just unbelievable i had never ever experienced anything like this. I kept reaching out to these attorneys in New York that worked for Hilton. And this one man, he was very empathetic and sympathetic. And he told me a little story. And he said, this is, you're not the first person that this has happened to, Jill. He said, this is very common. He said, there's a lot of uh, shysters out in the world that go around and they they are predators more or less looking for small businesses that they can get to do things, uh, get to do work, and then they abandon them. They don't pay them. And they know that you can't fight it. And the advice he gave me was do not settle for anything that is not going to help. And he says, I will guarantee you that they'll make you an offer that's going to be ridiculous. He said, If that offer is not going to help you, don't take it. And then I just said, Well, can you just call Paris? Paris Hilton, ha ha. And he laughed. And I said, I'm serious. Like just tell her, like I'm a female, I'm a I'm i a, I'm a woman in business, and and I put my life savings on the line for this fucking fountain at their goddamn hotel. Can't you just call her? And he just said, I don't know her. I mean, she doesn't have anything to do with this world, and. I guess it was during the time she was kind of popular. I don't know. But I was grabbing at straws because I just did not know what to do. And I had nobody in my life that I could turn to for counsel. You know, I just didn't have any attorney friends. I just didn't know what to do. And I was trying to put my trust in this corporate attorney from Asheville who was such small potatoes. He didn't know what the fuck to do either, I don't think. So, the guys who were working for me down in Atlanta, this company had put us in one of their shit hotels called the Microtel. We called it Micro Hell. And we had rooms there throughout the whole uh, building of the fountain. We were staying in this microtel. And so these guys, I had not paid them. I was supporting them as we were building. I paid all their expenses, their food, all their needs were met. They had shelter, you know, they had the place to stay, all their food, blah, 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 materials, whatever. And they were responsible for anything that they bought for the project, um, tool-wise or, you know, material-wise, gravel, anything they had to get and they would turn these receipts into me. Well, they were beginning to panic. And I was very upfront with them about what was happening. One of the guys who had kind of been a sh- kind of a sketchy kind of guy, he'd had some trouble with drugs and things. But he was a great worker, a great guy. And apparently he had forged a couple of receipts And so, and and I think he did it out of the goodness of his heart, trying to help the situation. I think he thought that if he made these receipts more than they actually were, then maybe the company would reimburse us. And I had sent in some receipts to this company and they'd send out these little dribbles of money to cover like a little bit here and a little bit there. And that was in the beginning. And I think that was to string us along. At one point during the job, I I even told them, look, if I don't get some money, we're going to walk, we're going to leave. And I remember them sending me like $4,000, which was like nothing. It wasn't even a drop in the bucket for what we had put in. Well, anyway, the, the attorney, apparently this company had gotten these receipts and they actually had a handwriting specialist look at these receipts and analyze them and, then they, the attorney calls me and says, I'm not going to be able to work for you because you have forged documents. And I was sta- I was like totally jaw drop. What are you talking about? I had no clue that this guy had written on this receipt ticket. And I'm, it was probably like a couple of hundred dollars. I have no idea what it was. I can't remember. But I just remember the attorney was very smug and the New York lawyer told me, he says, "This guy that's working for you will probably drop you because there's nothing in it for him. He said, attorneys don't want thing, they don't want jobs like this because they know they see the writing on the wall. They know they're not going to get their money. So he said he will probably drain you up to a point then and drop you. And so that was really more or less what happened, I think. I'm not sure. I'm I'm very, I get very dissociative when I, when I speak about this matter because it was so disturbing. Another thing that was very hard was that I had hired a pool builder. His name was Phil. He was a Russian guy. And he was a pool builder and he was very good. He was very serious about his work. And he had done the fountain in Greenville, the very first pool we did at this this Greenville Marriott. He'd come from Atlanta and done this smaller pool and did a great job. I paid him. It was great. So he was on board, and so when I told him on this big project, because this was going to be a $50,000 pool that he was going to build, the concrete pour and everything, he wanted money up front. And I told him, I said, Phil, I can't, I can't give you money up front because they're not giving me money up front. And it was winter time; He needed the work, and he agreed to go ahead and do the pool, just as I had agreed to go ahead and do the work. So now he's in the fold, and then my friend Carlos in Atlanta did all the statuary for this fountain and it was oh, uh, it was just astronomical, and he had fronted me all of these things because he loved me, and he trusted me. They trusted me, and I was trustworthy, and I was my word well. With all of this going down, I knew there was no way that I could pay Phil that $50,000. And I just, he was calling me and calling me. And every time the phone rang, my nervous system was shot. I wanted to drink. I wanted to run away. I wanted to just fucking end it. I could not deal with this. But here's the thing. I have this little place inside that I can tap into that is the place of trauma and the place of disaster that I have lived in and I know that place. And no matter what, nothing had ever been as horrible as the morning of January 11th, 1986, when I woke up in that kitchen floor with a butcher knife on my chest, laying in my own puke. I knew that nothing had ever been that bad. And so I've always been able to sort of draw on, yes, these circumstances suck, and yes, it's the unknown, and yes, I have no clue where I'm going next, but it's going to be okay. Okay. So I'm always usually able to tap into that place of it's going to be okay no matter what. And that's reeling it in to the moment. Just stay in the moment. I had to stay in the moment. And so I get back and this whole thing was just unraveling and more was being revealed. And I'm starting to realize that... They're probably not going to pay me. So one day I get a letter and they offered me $10,000 for the whole thing. We will settle with you, Jewel, for $10,000. And I remembered the guy, the New York lawyer, telling me, do not settle because $10,000 is not going to really help me at this point. And I refused it and said that I need more than this. And of course, you know, it just kind of battled. But, but they literally, it, they beat me down until I could not pay the attorney anymore. And I just had to let it go. And the guys who had worked for me, I felt so guilty. And I knew that I had to pay these guys. I knew I had to, so I put my house up on the market to sell. And this was the last thing I had, basically. I put the house up for sale and I sold the house. The day that I closed on this house, my little dog, Burr Haney, had gotten sick a couple of nights before. And the morning, I had to take him to the vet and have him put to sleep. And they put him in a little box. And I had two girls with me. And one of those girls' name was Ruth. And she was about 33 years old. And she was a bad alcoholic. And she was from New York, upstate New York. And she came along and she... Was such a sweet person. She looked like a supermodel. She was very unusual looking. She had very green eyes and these high cheekbones and she had a short kind of brown hair, but just a heart of gold. And I just adored her. And I asked her and this other girl, Hannah, to come with me to take my dog. And I just wasn't sure I was going to be able to function. It was devastating. I had never had to put an animal to sleep like this. My little cat, someone took my cat for me because I couldn't do it. But Burr Haney was 15 years old, and he had been with me since Bernie Street, and I remember putting my nose on his nose and I was crying as they were administering the shot. And I kept saying, You're so good. You're so good. And he just licked my nose. And I petted him and I cried. And it was like my heart was breaking in half. My heart was breaking and not in half, it was shattered. And he left, and we walked out of there with this little box, and he was in it. And we got in the truck, and then we had to go to the law office to close on my house. And I went in, and we closed. There was this young guy buying the house, and I was so numb and so distraught. I barely remember any of this. I profited about $79,000 on this house, and I turned around and I paid all those guys for all those months. I paid them every penny for their labor because I knew I could not just not pay them. And what little I had left, I renovated the upstairs. A part I made an apartment above the restaurant my landlords were generous enough to lease to me the upstairs portion of this building and so I turned it into an apartment and I moved my belongings up into this apartment some of the things I had to put in storage I didn't have a whole lot but I knew that I was going to be moving and so I had little the little peek-a-poo, and I had Sally Lulu. But before I moved, it was probably a couple of weeks, Suzanne had been very distant. She was already distant, but something odd had been happening. And I would go down into the basement. She would be making chocolate, and I would sort of talk to her, and she'd barely respond. And it had gotten weirder and weirder. And I just could not seem to to get any kind of answer from her about anything. And so this one night, she said she was going to her father's after work. And I said, okay. And so I came home. And the house was empty, and it was just me and the dogs, and she had her dog with her. And the next morning, Ruth had called me, the server, and asked me for a ride. And so I went and I picked her up, and we unlocked the front door of the Enchanted Garden Cafe slash Chocolate Garden. And we walked in, and we looked over to the left, and everything was gone. All of the equipment, all of the chocolate cases, the cash register, all of it, the chandelier, everything to do with the chocolate garden was gone. And Ruth and I looked at each other and we both said, Suzanne. We ran down. We unlocked the basement where the kitchen was. We ran downstairs. All of the chocolate equipment was gone. Anything to do with that chocolate garden was gone. All the molds. The tempering machines. The utensil, Everything. Everything was gone. And... I got on the phone and Suzanne had a cell phone, which was in my name. Of course, everything was in my fucking name. You know, and I had put her on the business basically, but it wasn't, it was just like, there wasn't anything in the business really. There was not any profit really being made. It was kind of like surviving. But all of these things I had bought with my crapshoot at the table, you know, I was gambling to try to stay afloat with this business. And so I start calling and calling and calling and she wouldn't answer. I called into the night and finally she picks up and I said, where are you? And she said, I'm not tell. I I, I can't tell you. I said, where are you? And she wouldn't tell me. And so then she, all she says to me is, and starts crying and says, you're a workaholic and you're never going to stop and hangs up on me. So she had gone to the house, I guess, sometime and gotten her things. And then I came back one day, it was in the daytime and something told me to turn back around and go back to my house And I got there and she was there and I confronted her in the house and it was a horrible situation and she wouldn't answer. I said, where is the equipment? Where's the stuff? And she wouldn't answer me and then she spit in my face. It was horrible. Well, I had a friend of mine go through the computer that I had at the house because I didn't really know that much about histories and computers and things of that nature So my friend got into the history and she found that Suzanne had basically been looking for over a year for a place to go and looking for chocolate cheer jobs and even on like gay cruise lines, she was looking for somewhere to escape. And, you know, of course I beat myself up, like why didn't I know, why didn't I question deeper why did I let this go on and on you know because I just didn't want to stir the pot it's a fucking codependent crippling thing that I have I guess that I just don't want anybody to be upset I just could not I couldn't deal with it it was like what the fuck it's just go ahead take it who gives a shit how much worse can it get well, don't ever say that. Don't ever say how much worse can it get, because right when you think it can't get any worse, (laughs) it can. So this whole fiasco was just devastating, and I was working 16 hours a day and I would get up and I would go downstairs and make coffee in the cafe, chug coffee, sit there, then start the, the process of opening, which, you know, it takes a while to set up a restaurant. And we turned those tables, uh, 60, sat 60 people, we turned lunch twice, and then we also did dinner. So during all of this madness, now I'm living upstairs and now I've got these waitresses that I've, you know, we've become like a little family and they know what's going on. Everybody has known this a disaster and whatever, but they're still making money. I mean, some of these servers were walking out of there was two or three hundred dollars a day on tips because Black Mountain's a tourist town and it was busy. But I'm not making a penny. (laughs) So it was this strange uh, existence. And we continued on this. And so the girls were pretty funny. And thank goodness for comic relief. Like I said, if I can't laugh to keep from crying, then I'm just going to blow my brains out. So one night, I go upstairs. And the girls, they go, come on, we want to show you something. We want to show you something. And they had a picture of me, and it was a pretty good picture. And and they they had taken this picture, and I came in my room, and I had a farm table with a computer on it. And it was one of the big old gateway, you know, big computers. And they were laughing, and I looked at the computer screen, and it had my picture on this, like, web, kind of a web page look. And I said, what is that? And they were laughing, and they had put my profile on a gay women's um, hookup spot. I don't even know what you call a dating site, I guess you would say. And Suzanne had been gone for months. Like, it had been, I don't even know how many months she'd been gone, but it had been a pretty long time. Maybe six, eight months, who knows. And the girls were just being kind of funny, and they were like, oh, we just wanted you to, you know, maybe if you met somebody, I'm like, oh, y'all, that's the last thing I need is to meet somebody. That's like insanity, right? But of course, there's always that other side of yourself that's like, well, you know, Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I met somebody, you know, somebody to talk to, a companion. And then it all starts inside of yourself like, well, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Knowing on the other side, it's like, yes, a bad idea. So one night I come upstairs, and this this particular website, it would kind of would leave like a little message on the computer if you had gotten a message or anything like that. And so I looked at it, and this person over in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, this woman had sent me this message. She was very attractive and said, you look like an interesting person, you know, if you'd like to chat, la, la, la. And I'm like, well, what harm would that do just to chat, right? And so I answer her message back. And the only thing that was on my profile was that I was an entrepreneur, uh, landscape kind of water feature, had nothing to do about this cafe, had nothing to do about this chocolate shop. It had nothing to do about the retail business at all. And so this particular woman, girl, she was like 36, she was a chef, which was very bizarre. And she owned her own catering business. And I thought, now that's very ironic. Okay, universe, what does this mean? I'm always trying to read into things. I'm always trying to understand. It's not like I walk around the fucking earth like blind, you know? And so I thought, well, God, you know, that's pretty coincidental. Is it a coincidence? So we chatted back and forth. I never mentioned a word about this restaurant. So several weeks go by, probably a month goes by, and we chat, and I'm telling Ruth, the girls who'd got me all involved in it, that we'd been talking. And I told Ruth one day, Ruth the alcoholic. I said, Ruth, you know, this this person invited me over to Nashville to come visit. And uh, she said, oh, you got to go. You got to go. I'll ride with you. Come on, let's go. And I was like, no, I can't. You know, and I never took a day off. We were open seven days a week. And I was just busting my ass seven days a week. Oh, so exhausting. So finally, Ruth convinces me that we should drive over to Knoxville. So we, we plan it. We're going to go over there. And this person says, yes, you can stay with me. You know, I've got a spare bedroom and your friend can sleep on the couch. Everything will be great. And so we start journeying from Asheville to Nashville, or Black Mountain to to Nashville. And I stopped halfway because I could tell Ruth was starting to get the jitters. And so she got her a bottle of vodka and... It doesn't bother me when people drink around me. And Ruth wasn't the kind of drunk that would get all shit-faced and act crazy. Now, sometimes, you know, after work, I think in her nightlife, who knows what she did, but I never really had seen her that out of control. She was always sort of at an even keel. So she had some drinks, and we just talked and listened to music and kind of laughed. And it was the first time I'd been away in a really long time. We made it to Nashville, and we got to this condominium complex, knocked on the door, and this woman policeman opens the door. This kind of manly woman. And I'm like, whoa. And she's like, hello. And we were like, well, hello. And she calls out this person's name and lets us in. Says, come on in. And this lady, girl, woman that I had been kind of messaging back and forth with had made this dinner. She made paella and it was very good and she was real nervous, I could tell. And we met and it was fine and we sat at the table and they all drank wine and this cop was there, I guess, to make sure we weren't weird because it was an internet thing, which I'd never gotten involved on an internet thing ever. I didn't even know that much about the internet at that point. So we sat and we had dinner and we were kind of talking. And and this, this person says, my life dream is to have a restaurant. And Ruth and I looked at each other and we started laughing. And she said, what? And I go, I'll never forget this. I said, well, I've got one you can have, kind of jokingly. And she said, what? And I said, I I own a restaurant. She goes, you own a restaurant? And I said, yeah. I said, you can have it if you want it. And I was completely being sarcastic and jokey. And she's just like, oh, my God, I'd love to come see it. Oh, my God, that would be so cool. And so the more wine they drank, you know, I could tell she was getting a little more like, uninhibited, I guess you'd say. And so it was time to go to bed and I was very exhausted. And so I went in this, this spare bedroom and I got ready to go to bed. And the next thing I know, she comes into the room. I did not know her, but she came in the room and all I can say is this, is that if she had been a man it would have probably been kind of like a rape, but see i'm I'm so like um calloused and so hardened and jaded by this time in my life that nothing phases me that much. Abuse doesn't even seem like abuse, it just seemed like an aggressive sexual person, but I really did not want to be with this person. And the next thing I know, she's like, I'm on, I'm face down and she's on me. And it was the weirdest encounter. And I kind of just went with the situation and it repulsed me. And the next day, uh, we got up and Ruth and I were like, we got we to get back. And, and before we left, she goes, well, let me take you all around Nashville. And she had this convertible car and we get in this car with her. And she drives us all around Nashville and shows us the scene. And, and I was very antsy and I really needed to get away. And so finally we get back, back to Black Mountain. And I'm like, okay, good, that's over with. Well, this person started calling me. And she said, you know what? I want to come visit. I'd like to see your place. It sounds like you could use some help. So a couple of weekends later, she comes to Black Mountain. She shows up. She's dressed to kill. She's very dressed up, very nice looking, and long red hair, green eyes, looks kind of like Andy McDowell. Like She's very attractive, very personable, very friendly with all the wait staff. She's very nice to everybody. Everybody liked her. She's funny. And, you know, so she spent the weekend and she was very inquisitive on how I did all of this and la la la. So she leaves and goes back to Tennessee. And so a couple nights later, I'll never forget, I was walking up the steps to the apartment and I was exhausted. 16 hours a day is hard. And the thing about a restaurant is the setup and the breakdown are the same, no matter if you're busy or not. There's the same amount of work. But I was going up these stairs and I just felt so defeated I felt like such a fucking loser. It was like, what in the world has happened? And universe, what the fuck do you want from me? You know, I, I, I could not own my responsibility of my choices. And I guess there's that whole, I should have known, I should have known better. Yeah, I should have listened to my gut. You know, and it's all of that stuff that just brings up all this shame and guilt of why I couldn't have done it differently. And all this regret. And then I kept trying to reel it in and get in the moment and try to be positive and Pollyanna about it. Well, there's no way to be Pollyanna about this shit. Just was not good at all. Well, I get upstairs and my phone rings. And it was about 1130, almost midnight. And it's her from Tennessee. And she says, you know what? I've been thinking a lot about this, Jill. And she says, I'm going to come over there and help you. You really need some help. And she says, I've put my catering business on hold. I've called my clients. My condo, I've put my, my lease on hold. And I'm going to come over and help you. And I was like, really? And there was a part of me that was like, oh, wow. Like, relief. Like, okay, well, maybe this is like, maybe this is a blessing. Maybe this is a good thing. And then there's another part of me like, oh, I don't know. I don't know her. But obviously, see, and this is where it gets all fucked up. Obviously, if the universe brings this situation in, then it has to be okay, right? So, I say, okay, I guess, and she comes on. So, she comes in like gangbusters, and she's cooking, and her food's great, and and everybody likes her, and everything's moving along, and it's working, and I, I get to take a few breaks here and there, and... But in the process, you know, she's like, wants to be my lover. And I'm like, I don't really want her to be my person. I'm not into her. I mean, she was pretty and she was nice, but there wasn't really any chemistry there for me with this person. I felt forced upon. And so, but I just went with it. And, you know, she had this little dog and it was missing a leg. It was like a Pomeranian And that little dog, you know, my little dogs were kind of like, who's that? And there she is like getting in my bed with that Pomeranian, like looking at me. And I'm, I'm living like in on another planet by now. I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm just feel like I'm at the universe's, I'm just there. I don't even know anything anymore. So the days would go by, and now the servers start coming to me, and they're like, Jill, she's she's kind of said something weird to me, or she snapped at me, or she did something strange, and then Ruth comes to me, who I really, I deeply trusted Ruth. One alcoholic to another, you can't con a con. I mean, I really felt like Ruth and I had a good bond, and she comes to me, and she says, listen, I kind of feel like, you know, it's like if, you're, if your father got remarried and got a stepmother and the stepmother was nice to you for a little while and then starts abusing you. It's like that. And I went, oh no. And so it started this weird dynamic where she was being kind of mean to the people working there and they were kind of like, I'm not going to work for her. So it starts all this drama And in the meantime, my friend Tina, who moves back and forth to D.C. quite often, she had called and was going to come down, and I had gotten this job to go build a wall. And it was going to be a stone wall out near Mars Hill in Madison County. And So Tina asked her to come down and help me because she was kind of like my person and she was able to do this work. She was physically able. And now that this new person was there, she could like watch the place while I go out and do some of these jobs that people had still been calling for these outside landscape water feature, turning into stonework jobs. And so Tina comes down, and when this person sees Tina, she immediately thinks that we're like together, and that's a very weird thing. I've said, no, she's 20 years younger than me, which really didn't mean anything, but she's my friend, she's my friend, don't be jealous, and she was very jealous And Tina and I leave and we go out to Mars Hill to do this job. And the people that hired us, they live in Charleston. They had a beach house down in Charleston and they had built this, this new art studio. The lady was an artist and she said, you know, you guys can stay there. You can camp out there if you want and I'll leave you the key to the house. And so we decided we would just stay there until this wall was built And that way, it would just give me a break away from this madness. Well, I had really started to do some deep meditation. I was really trying to get grounded. And Tina's a pretty spiritual person. And so we were really working in a lot of silence and really trying to just tap in. But before we started this wall... I took a bunch of incense and I stuck a lot of these incense along this area. This wall was going to be about 75 feet long and about four or five feet high. And I lit all these incense on the, the hillside where it was to be built. And Tina said, why are you doing that? And I said, well, I kind of feel like I need to ask permission. I said, this feels like sacred land to me. And she said, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. And so I said, I'm going to go take a walk. And I had my little dogs. And I went up the road. And as I was walking, I could feel some sort of spirit. I swear. I felt like something was watching me. And I looked up on these mountains. And there were these cliffs and these big rock formations. And it, it was as if it was like a Native American lookout point. And I thought, man, that had to have been some sort of lookout point or a gathering spot. Like I totally felt it. And I got up to the end of this road and I kind of got weirded out. And I thought, I got to go back. So as I was walking down this this long dirt road... I look over in these trees, these these big, tall, some were American beech trees, oak trees, big hardwoods. And I swear, I saw a Native American man come out from a tree, walking beside me. But he wasn't walking, he was levitating. He had some black sort of, I guess, shoe polish, what I would call it, under his eyes. Kind of like a football player puts on when they're trying to negate the sun. I saw this entity, and I thought, am I losing my mind here? And then he walked behind a tree, and he was gone. And I almost ran back. And when I got back down the hill, I thought, am I even going to try to tell Tina this? And I I told her I had the strangest vision. And his face was very serious. His face was very... Uh, I can't even describe it. And so... Later that day, a man came up to the job site and one of the places that you had to pass to come up to this house, there was a huge boulder. This boulder was the size of a house and it was sitting beside this dirt road as if it just got rolled down the hill one time. So when this man came up, he lived close by. He just wanted to know what we were doing, and we were just chit-chatting. And then I looked at him, and I said, Do you know if this land was ever, like, Native American? And he looked at me real funny. He said, You know that big boulder down there? And I said, Yeah. And he says, There's a creek right beside there, and there have been countless amounts of arrowheads found in there. He says, Oh, yeah, this was, this was Cherokee and he said he had heard that it was one of the areas that a lot of Native Americans hid out during the Trail of Tears. So I felt like, okay, what? why is the veil so thin? What is going on here? And so Tina and I, we built this wall. We had seven or eight days of solitude and we really kind of got reconnected to the earth and that's usually my go-to in times of trouble and so I knew going back to the situation over there in Black Mountain with this shit storm I had created that I was going to have to put my foot down and make the changes and send this person back to Tennessee. So the night we finished the wall, the owners came up from Charleston and they loved it. They were very happy. They paid us and we got everything ready to go. We tied everything in the back of my truck and Tina actually had her car. And so The lady and the man, they were super nice. And they said, hey, you know, we're going to be up here all week. Why don't y'all take our beach house down in Charleston, Isle of Palms? And we were like, really? And they go, yeah, like a bonus. And they gave us their house key. And they said, you know, if we wanted to just go and pack up some stuff and head down there, we could totally go use their house. Well, Tina and I were just like ecstatic, like, yeah, hell yeah, let's go to the beach. It was already dark when we get on the highway on 1923 going back to Asheville, which would take us back to Black Mountain, and Tina was driving in front of me. And I look in my rearview mirror, and I started seeing something in the back of my truck bed that was sort of moving and we had tied everything down we'd bungee corded it and tied it well a friend had loaned me this kind of cheap ass wheelbarrow. It's one of those kind of plastic wheelbarrows and had wooden handles but it was lightweight well that thing had caught some air under it and it was starting to sort of move And I kept looking at it, kind of like, is that thing moving? Well, the next thing I know, the wheelbarrow went up in the air, broke loose from the bungee cords or the ropes or whatever we had it tied down with, and hit the pavement. I saw sparks flying and a car behind me swerved to avoid this wheelbarrow, and this car hit a bridge and had this horrible accident. Well, I flashed my lights at Tina, and she pulled over, and I pulled over, and we were probably maybe like a football field away from the accident. And we stood there, and I said, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, Tina, that's our wheelbarrow. that's the wheelbarrow came loose and we just we were standing there and we didn't know what to do. and so I put my truck in park and I locked it because my dogs were in there and I just started walking toward this accident and by then all these cars had stopped and 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 there were people everywhere and I it was like I was in shock and I couldn't really it was like I was outside of the whole thing looking in. And I walked up, and then about that time, you know, State Patrol came. There were ambulances coming. And I looked in, and the woman was in this vehicle, and the airbag had come out. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I said, are you okay? And she kind of looked up at me, and she says, I think so. And the next thing I know, I hear this girl say, that's her. She was driving the truck. And it was like I was in another, it was like I was in a dream. It wasn't even like I was in reality. And the state patrol pulled me over to the side and he goes, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And we walked and we walked up to my truck and I told him, I said, my, that was my wheelbarrow and it got loose. And he said, why did you, why didn't you stop? And I said, well, I just I saw the whole thing happen. It was, it just all happened. And then I couldn't get off the road quick enough. I said, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't have any answers for you. And I think he knew that I was somewhat in shock. Um, and he wrote me a ticket for an insecure load. It was a couple hundred bucks. It wasn't like the most horrible ticket on the planet, but I was so scared. I was so petrified about this woman. And she was a nurse at the VA hospital and she was actually on her way to work. And so I just felt devastated. I felt like the biggest cursed person on the planet. I could not grasp what was happening to my life, and to my psyche, I really felt like I was gonna lose my mind. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick And we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com and follow us on social media for updates.